0: Good evening. Uh, welcome to everyone. My name is uh, Eric Neumeyer. I'm the head of the Department of Geography and Environment here at the LSE. It is a great pleasure to host tonight and to be chairing this event with uh, Fred Pierce, who is here to talk about his new book, uh, The Land uh, Grabbers. Uh, Fred is a world renowned environmental journalist who writes a lot for the New Scientist, for The Guardian, The Mail on Sunday, and other uh, publications. Uh, in fact, uh, when I went to Boston over the weekend um, to a conference on sustainability and inequality, I was talking about the, this event that I was going to chair on, on Monday, and uh, Jim, Jim Boyce, who was uh, a keynote speaker there, said, oh, is that the Fred Pierce of the New Scientist? So clearly... Uh, You uh, you and your work are well known. Uh, Fred is the author of a dozen or so uh, books, give or take. Depends on what you count. (laughs) Depends on what you count. Uh, And um, uh, it is a great pleasure to uh, have him here. Fred is going to speak for about 35 minutes, and we have two co-discussants, so to speak. Now, that is not particularly usual at LSE, and it isn't because we are suspicious of anything Fred is going to say. Fred himself was interested in having sort of an active debate with some of the uh, academics here, and we uh, are glad to have two of the finest academics at LSE working on this issue uh, first of all, at the end of the table, uh, Dr. Charles Palmer, who is a lecturer in environment and development here in the Department of Geography and Environment, and Professor An- Professor Anthony Hall, who is a professor of uh, social policy. Guess what department? Department of Social uh, Policy. Good guess. <laughs> Good guess. <laughs> uh, both have worked extensively on deforestation, on ecosystem services, on all sorts of things having to do directly or indirectly with land use. Uh, So I think uh, both are extremely qualified to uh, discuss some of these um, issues. Um, We are thinking 10 minutes for each after the presentation. Then we will open it up for a general question and answer session, which should still give us half an hour. So please join me in welcoming...
1: Thank you um, It's great to be here Thank you very much Fabulously good audience actually I'm really pleased um, This is the cover of my book um, It's a work of journalism I guess Rather than um, an, a work of, uh, of academia Um, I hope it's not uh, Newsnight-style shoddy journalism. I hope it's good journalism. But at any rate, reportage with references. Let's put it that way. It's a global investigation um, of land grabbing, this new phenomenon really of the last five years of people buying up farmland across the world to grow crops for the global market in farm products, crops like corn and palm oil, sugar and biofuels, all of which seem to have rising prices, making their production more and more profitable and holding the land where you can grow the stuff more and more profitable. And some of the most unlikely places are being snapped up. And gullible governments, I think they're gullible, are selling land cheap, sometimes actually giving it away free in the belief that it will bring economic development ...to their countries, particularly in Africa. Too often, I find, um, I think it is unlikely to do anything of the sort. It's early days sometimes, but the evidence is that people want to quick get in, grab their profit and get out. And I'm afraid too many corporations investing in Africa in particular take that approach. Um, this man may be the world's top land grabber. He'd certainly like to be. His name is Ramakrishna Karaturi... An engineer from Bangalore who grows a tenth of the world's traded roses. So, you know, if you're buying a rose on Valentine's Day, 10% chance that it comes from one of his greenhouses he does this. Um, No, his greenhouses don't take a huge amount of land, but he now wants to move into mainstream agriculture. He wants, he says, a million hectares of land under his ploughs in Africa. Now, I don't know how good your geography is, whether you can imagine a million hectares, but it's an area slightly larger than Kent, Surrey, and East and West Sussex combined. It's a lot of land, and that's his ambition for the next five years. He already has some. This is a soggy bit um, in Ethiopia. He just grabbed his first 100,000 hectares of soil in Gambella, in a remote corner of southwest ethiopia Not a kind of place where anybody has thought of buying... Any outsider has thought of buying land before. But he's taken, as I say, 100,000 hectares. That's Luxembourg and a bit more. And it's good land. His project manager told me that it is some of the richest soil that he'd ever worked. 5% organic matter, he told me. Plenty of water. In fact, the water... This is more or less on the headwaters of the Nile. Um... We can grow anything here, his manager told me. We don't even need fertiliser. I think after a couple of years they will, but they're starting off without. The soil is so good. Expensive, you might think. Um, But no, the rent is £200, $300 a day. Land the size of Luxembourg for not much more than you would pay to rent a nice apartment in central London. And that's kind of typical of the kind of deals that are happening, immensely cheap, profit, potentially profitable purchases being made, or more typically actually leasing, but he's got a 50-year uh, lease. Land grabbers, like him, there are a lot of Chinese entrepreneurs, there are Gulf Oil shapes, there are... Wall Street speculators, city of London speculators, are gobbling up the wide open spaces across the plains of Africa, the paddy fields of Southeast Asia. I went to the forests of South America, the steppes of Russia. you name it, they're there. The scale is, frankly, amazing. It's difficult to know the precise numbers. Um, nobody really knows. But Oxfam estimates that something over 200 million hectares um, have been uh, appropriated in the past decade. They've not all been farmed yet but they've been taken. That's an area the size of Britain, France, Germany, Spain, Italy and the Benelux countries put together. All in the name of feeding the world. That's what we're told. The problem is, as far as I'm concerned, that the land is being taken from some of the world's poorest and often hungriest people. People who need that land to stay fed and whose power to prevent their governments from selling their land from beneath them is very small. To me, they look like victims, not the beneficiaries of foreign investment. They're people like Omad, who I met in Gambella, where Karaturi operates. His land is being taken by one of the new land grabbers there. I met him in a forest clearing where he said... His ancestors had lived for 10 generations. You can see he's sitting on a buckskin um, in a clearing. Um, but they're not going to be there for much longer, or I, wouldn't, I would guess not. We used to sell honey, he told me. But two years ago, the company, the land grabber, began chopping down our forest, and the bees went away. We used to hunt, but after the farm came, the wild animals disappeared. Now we only have fish he told me, Um, and he won't have that for much longer, I think. His clearing was just behind those trees on the top left there. The company is digging a canal, as you can see, and a road close to his hut to drain the nearby wetland. So the fish, I fear, will soon be gone too. He will have nothing left. His environment, on which he depends, will be gone. He told me when my father died, he said, don't leave the land. And we made a promise that we wouldn't leave. We can't give it to the foreigners, he told me. But in truth, I think his his children probably have no future there. During my visit, the government was rounding up people and sending them to the towns and to new villages. It was a huge villagisation programme involving roughly a third of all the people in Gambella. Done, they said, in the name of providing services, but actually being done to remove the people from the land being handed over to outside agriculturalists. Uh, It's not going too well. I think, actually, months after my visit, there was an armed rebellion um, that began at one of the land grabbers' camps. So what is being talked about as investment for uh, development of the region looks like uh, uh, a down payment on on, on a little nasty little civil war. We shall see. In researching my book, I found I followed the trail from boardrooms and ministries to the fields and forests where I met numerous such victims uh, uh, like Omot of globalized land grab. And I make no apologies for taking their side. It seems to me that what's going on here, whatever you think about the economics, is an injustice, a major injustice. There were herders like these on the edge of the Sahara who found their cattle trails being turned into tarmac roads, as here, and their pastures fenced in for sugar and rice farms. I met Cambodians run out of town by their own senators who were selling sugar to Tate and Lyle, it turns up at the uh, refinery on the Thames estuary. And I met representatives of Paraguayan indigenous people ejected from their land by Brazilian ranchers who've taken over effectively border area about 50 kilometers on the north of Paraguay which is effectively now owned by Brazilians. Major land ownership changes going on. This is a picture I took in of the Chaco Forest in Paraguay which is being rapidly cleared by the Brazilian ranchers. Each of this is taken from a fairly low flying aircraft but each of those patches is one square kilometer. All of it All those patches had been cleared in the previous year, I was told. Down there somewhere are some of the world's last contacted, rather uncontacted, people. Tribes that really have virtually no, or indeed absolutely no, uh, link-up with people outside the forest. They're now living within the sound of the land grabbers, bulldozers. Nobody asked them for sure whether they were happy to give up their land to the ranchers. So here are two questions. But we need to keep asking, or at any rate, I ask myself. First, is this fair? Have these people given consent to their land being taken over? In general, the answer must be no. If they have, fine. But if they haven't, I have a question. And also, does it make sense, in economic terms, to trash the lives of people like Omot and the millions of others in the name of feeding the world's poor? And I'll come back to that. Well, I'll come back to them both. But first, why is this happening and why now? The new land grab, the new land rush, began in 2008 after the soaring price of uh, food sent shockwaves around the world. Some of you may remember it was headline news for a while. The immediate cause of the rising prices was droughts, particularly in Australia, a major food exporter. But people began to fear that after a couple of decades of cheap food supplies around the world, that something was going wrong with Food production. Perhaps there were too many of us. Um, Perhaps the era of uh, cheap food was gone and a new era of expensive food and food shortages had arrived. That was the perception, anyway. There was a specter of kind of Malthusian famines returning. Um, And not just among sort of fringe environment groups, the British government chief scientist John Beddington saw not a blip in these sudden rises in food prices, he saw a long term trend. And he talked about what he called a perfect storm in which a combination of climate change and rising world population, disintegrating ecosystems and land and water shortages were going to create an escalating food crisis over the next decades that could see, as he said, hundreds of millions starve. Well, you know, people have said those kind of things before and they haven't happened, but that was the concern, that was the environment in which land grabs started to happen, yo-yoing food prices and an increasing expectation that they were on a (coughs) long-term upward trend. Governments got fearful, and they were right to be fearful. Historians among you will know that bread riots are bad news for governments almost wherever they happen. They bring down governments. And high food prices have caused food riots in the last five years. Here we are in Tahrir Square in Cairo. Um, That is a bread helmet, um, they tell me. That's what it was called. That is, at any rate, bread on his right ear. We like to think that the Arab Spring was due to a popular demand for democracy. But actually, a lot of the people demonstrating in Egypt and Tunisia that year, um, like this guy, were protesting principally about food prices uh, demonstrated by the bread helmet. To try and insulate themselves from this kind of thing, a number of major food-importing nations with more organized governments, like China and Korea and Saudi Arabia, have begun scouring the world looking for cheap, secure land to grow crops for their citizens back home. And they've been recruiting their national corporations, Daewoo in in, uh, South Korea and others to take over the land and set up large agribusiness corporations South Korea set a target to establish Korean owned farms on foreign soil to grow a quarter of that country's food by 2030 and it's had some hiccups along the way Daewoo caused a coup in, in Madagascar by, uh, by trying to take over large areas of, uh, of arable land but it's still trying and that, and that was there, that deal was called off But Korea is still on course to get that land. And once food prices started rising with governments and major agribusiness corporations moving in, um, speculators, as you might, might imagine, joined in too. They saw rising prices for food commodities, rising prices for land. They figured that there were coming food shortages and there were profits to be made. Here we have George Soros, one of the most famous investors, I guess, certainly one that uh, that many other investors will follow. And he was saying in 2009, I'm convinced that farmland is going to be one of the best investments of our time. He's personally been buying in Brazil. I saw one of his farms, and a lot of other investors have followed. Since 2008, 2009, investment bank, banks and hedge funds and so on have been fencing in African land in particular. It's the cheapest. Um, And cornering the market in everything from Brazilian soy fields to Chinese poultry farms and so on. Goldman Sachs have been buying up Chinese poultry farms, which is a curiosity, but I guess they know what they're doing. I found British land grabbers, um, big corporations but speculative investors too, in 20 African countries. Associated British Foods, one of our largest food combines, acquired 120 thousand hectares of sugar plantations in six African countries a British banker called Leonard Thatcher, no relation that I know of, claims control of more than half a million hectares in the new state of South Sudan in a deal done with an aged chief whose people have since denounced the deal and indeed so has he so maybe he won't get his hands on the land but that was the deal that was done some unexpected people get involved General Sir Edmund Watt, who uh, commanded British land forces, Britain's top soldier until 2008, and who organised the Queen Mother's funeral, turned out to be chairing a company with options on more than 200,000 hectares of bush in Guinea, in West Africa. Uh, It was a deal done with the government, but they tried to pay a little bit of compensation to the villagers whose land was being taken. One village, they told me, was persuaded to sell its land for three pounds not a small amount of land. We're talking about a large area of grazing land for £3. This is not precisely the land, but good land uh, like this. Why do African governments go along with this kind of thing? Why, indeed, do some of them encourage it, have an open-door policy for foreign investors? Well, some people talk about corruption, and I'm sure sometimes, you know, some people get a bit on the side. But they also do believe that almost any foreign investment must be good. That's the prevailing view if you talk to officials and min- indeed ministers across Africa. Almost any foreign investment must be good. They often feel guilty, the more aware ones often feel guilty about their past failure to invest in agriculture, hugely underinvested in over the last 50 years since independence, essentially. Um, but they react to that by not discriminating between good investment. And what is frankly get rich quick speculation, and there's been too much of the latter. It's not all bad. I've seen some good stuff. Some companies do intend to be there for the long term. Oddly enough, some of them are palm oil companies, which get a bad press uh, quite reasonably for their environmental damage, but actually do have an interest in being there in the long term because they're going to grow or they're going to harvest their crops over perhaps a 30 year cycle. They need to invest a bit in the land and indeed in the people, so they're often not too bad. Um, in Liberia, this is here, I found a British palm oil company um, got nearly 200,000 hectares but it was reviving an abandoned existing plantation and it was also offering to buy produce from local smallholders which seems to be a better model for land grabbers if they're going to be involved in, in taking over land, well take a bit of land but then buy stuff from local farmers, local smallholders, that may be a more useful model than the slam in quick and get out one. But at any rate, it had built this new school. These kids hadn't had a school before. So good stuff can happen. But from what I saw, too much of the investment has been bad news for locals. They've been turfed off their land. Often the contracts stipulate that the land will be given to them without any people on it. And the people thrown off the land get no compensation, no really anything. They're just impoverished by the process. It's certainly not developed by it. There are other issues, other resources involved here sometimes. Often land grabs are really water grabs. Water to irrigate crops is in increasingly short supply around the world. Countries like Saudi Arabia, one of the biggest (coughs) land grabbers, after all have plenty of land. trouble is it's desert. What they need is land with water for irrigating crops. One estimate is that uh, food production in a fifth of the world today is limited not by land shortages, but by water shortages. So land with water is a key commodity. Well, water, grab, water grabs can be disastrous too. I went to Mali in West Africa on the edge of the Sahara, where the government is taking water out of the river Niger, as here, using this barrage for big sugar and rice schemes being developed by the Chinese and the Libyans and the Qataris and others. Large projects irrigating the desert. Sounds good, but immediately downstream of this barrage taking the water is one of, frankly, nature's great aquatic marvels, the inland delta of the river Niger. It's a vast wetland the size of Belgium, and it's not just for nature. There are a couple of million people living there by fishing, gathering the rich lake grasses, Farming, rearing livestock on on pasture land. It's a wonderful, and I spent some days there, uh, sustainable management of a very rich ecosystem. You couldn't do better. Um, But it is in serious trouble. I mean, those are just some boats on the delta. Hydrologists reckon that hundreds of square kilometers of the wetland will dry out as a result of the new irrigation schemes being built tens of thousands of livelihoods will be lost. Yes, they'll have more rice. Yes, they'll have more sugar for export. But what is being lost? The livelihoods of thousands, tens, probably hundreds of thousands of people, ultimately. I met Daouda Sanankua, who's the mayor of a big chunk of the wetland. Uh, He travelled by boat overnight to meet me. Um, Not many people go into the wetland to discuss their problems. He was very keen to talk. Everything here he told me, depends on the water. The government is taking our water. It doesn't even tell us what it is doing. And that anger was arguably one cause of some of the unrest in the country that began this summer. I wouldn't say it's the primary cause, but I certainly met people on the wetland who were growing angry, and they are right on the border area between where the rebels are and where the government is still in control. So there are consequences, political consequences for some of these land grabs and water grabs. Often, as I say, grabbers are taking water and land at the same time. Here is in Kenya in East Africa where I met angry locals who've been fenced out of the Yala Swamp on the shores of Lake Victoria. Uh, The fence was put up by an evangelical American real real estate entrepreneur called Calvin Burgess, a man who made his runny money-running privatized American prisons. He's now investing some of his profits in buying pieces of Africa. He calls this one Dominion Farm. Um, I'm not sure about the name. I'm really not. Uh, It's draining the swamp to irrigate rice. And this, as you will guess, is the boundary between the papyrus of the swamp and one of his new rice fields. Here is one of his, well, here is his American farm manager, who took me round. He was proud of his farm. He's, uh, he knows all about draining swamps. He comes from Louisiana. He's been, he's been draining swamps all his life. Um, and I'm sure he knows what he's doing. But then meet one of the locals, 74-year-old Dalmas. There's the fence of the farm in the background, who told me we all used to live in the swamp. Me and my 17 brothers and sisters were born there. They had big families back then. My grandfather died there, he said. We had 100 cattle in our family then. Uh, no more. Most of the village's adults were indeed born inside the swamp, but are now living huddled in squatter colonies round this fence, around the edge of their farm. And all their cattle, virtually all their cattle are gone. This is supposed to be development to help a poor community. It certainly hasn't worked out like that. Certainly not for them. They are indisputably poorer. They've also lost a lot of their liberty. Uh, I don't know if you can read that. That's a letter they showed me when I visited. They would had to get it from the the company's security services um, in order for them to be able to walk on what seemed to be a public road to take me round to show me uh, their side of the story about what was happening in the farm. I could go down the road, unencumbered, but if they wanted to go with me and show me round, they needed this letter. The whole area felt like a kind of prison camp. didn't look like development to me. Poor rural Africa, as you will begin to gather, is at the heart of this. It's one of the last great, unfenced, fertile areas of the planet. People want that land. The World Bank says this roughly 4 million square kilometres of the savanna grasslands between the rainforests and the desert are what people want. It's the yellow area on that map, the Guinea savanna zone, as geographers will call it. The bank calls it the world's last larger reserve of underused land. A land that African leaders will often say could feed the world. Well, maybe. But the trouble is that this underused land is home to half a billion Africans. Peasant farmers, hunters, herders, uh, they use this land. All of it. There is very little land out there which isn't claimed and mostly used by somebody. And these are among the world's poorest people. Now, they badly need economic development. Nothing that I say suggests that they should stay in the plight that they currently are. And, of course, economic development is what the land grabbers, the foreign investors, promise. But I don't see much sign of development, and I have serious questions about whether it will be delivered. There are too many examples of failed development projects in Africa for us to be sanguine about what's going on. And there's another problem. Despite the frequent talk about needing this land to feed the world, and that's what's on the prospectuses of many of the, uh, of the would-be investors as they go around the city uh, looking for money. Um, many of the land grabbers, however, are not growing food at all. Uh, one of the biggest uh, growth areas in it during the land grabbing time has been for biofuels. Biofuels are spreading across Africa in Mozambique, biofuel concessions now cover an area larger than Scotland. British biofuel companies have been the biggest land grabbers of all in Africa. Now some biofuels have done well. Palm oil is increasingly grown as a biofuel across Africa as well as for food and cosmetics and so on. But others have not. Perhaps the best example of this is jatropha. Um, a report by Goldman Sachs back in 2007 hailed jatropha as a new wonder crop. Uh, just squash the fruit and basically produce biodiesel, a substitute for diesel in vehicles. Many rushed to plant what was still basically, however, an African weed. Uh, lots of people, as I say, tried it, and hopes were high. And Sun Biofuels, the company grabbed from their website, uh, was among them. Sun Biofuels, with big city backing, um, breezed into Tanzania and Mozambique and planted tens of of thousands of hectares. The company persuaded the British Overseas Development Minister, Stephen O'Brien, to go out there to do some publicity. And he got headlines for saying that the project was, quote, a shining example for countries around the world as to how to produce green energy. Uh, but Jatrofa hasn't delivered. Um, embarrassingly for the minister, just four months later, Sun Biofuels went out of business. Uh, leaving behind abandoned land and angry locals. Actually, the land is still fenced off, awaiting a new buyer. So the locals have neither their land nor any job (coughs) on the farm. Worst of all worlds. During my research, I also got concerned about the role of environmentalists as land grabbers, green grabbers, if you will. They too want land to protect nature to encourage nature tourism sometimes, to provide revenues so that they can protect more nature. They have a business plan, but often they don't care too much who they take the land from. Because green grab can be big business. The Maasai in East Africa, um, a tribe which over hundreds, probably thousands of years, has managed to live in harmony with wildlife, which is why there's so much wildlife left in East Africa. Uh, graze their cattle on the same land as elephants and giraffes and so on are wandering through they clearly know how to do it um, but they are having their land taken from a fifth of Kenya today is given over to national parks for foreign tourists um, much of it uh, former Maasai land um, private wildlife parks are proliferating in eastern and indeed in southern Africa even more and there are hunting concessions, too. In Tanzania, one big chunk of the Serengeti plain, formerly the heartland of the Maasai, is set aside now for the exclusive use of hunters from the United Arab Emirates. In fact, the area is so much, part, so much not part of Tanzania that even the airwaves seem to have been taken over. If you drive anywhere near, your mobile phone will suddenly beep and it will welcome you to the United Arab Emirates. In Tanzania, it is not anymore. Um, green grabs are kind of sideshow in this, but I think they're, they're a significant one, and they kind of re- and certainly environmentalists and private people who want to take over chunks of land for their own spiritual edification or to make profit or for whatever, they are regarded by local um, local people in much the same light as, uh, as big business agriculturalists. they are simply grabbers moving in on their land. I don't think environmentalists are going to get very far with that kind of adversarial approach, which still pervades, perhaps better than they were, but still pervades too much environmental activity in the developing world. But put all this together, um, what I think is happening is that many countries are losing control of their own land to foreign land grabbers. The Governments are often more than complicit. They're encouraged the process. They're taking land which um, uh, in past eras has been nationalized in the name of helping the people. That was the socialist model of how to provide development in in Africa and indeed elsewhere was to have collective ownership of the land. But that collectively owned land is now being leased or sold off to foreign investors. They're losing control of their land. When the new state of South Sudan raised the flag in July last year. A tenth of its territory had already been leased to foreigners, from Wall Street speculators to Egyptian farmers uh, to a Gulf zoo, which probably wanted to air freight some uh, wildlife back to the Gulf. A tenth of the land handed over before the state even existed. It was all done by the provisional government. Three-quarters of Liberia in West Africa, a country recovering from civil war, is now parceled out in concessions for logging companies, mining companies, palm oil plantations like the one you saw, rubber plantations like Firestone, which has been there for a long, long time, and the like. Um, I'm not sure that this is a sustainable model for Africa or, indeed, anywhere else. Handing over the most fundamental resource of for many of these countries, their land, just handing it over uh, for foreign exploitation. Nor, I think, are the methods that are being used, right? This is the sort of model for the high-tech prairie-style agriculture that most of the agricultural land grabbers say they want to bring to Africa. This is going to transform African agriculture. They're going to do it with a big kit like this. This is in Kenya. And yet, even among the land grabbers, many of them don't seriously believe despite what the prospectuses of their companies say. Don't seriously believe that mechanized prairie-style agriculture is seriously going to deliver uh, development in Africa. It's done some quite interesting things in Brazil. I wouldn't say that it can't be done in the tropics, um, but I don't think Africa is the same as Brazil. In 2008, James Siggs, who's a British farmer from Yorkshire, I think, joined up with a Canadian venture capitalist to create what they called US-style large-scale agriculture on 100,000 hectares that they'd leased in the Congo, the Democratic (coughs) Republic of Congo. The company said that it would be a breakthrough for that country's development. It could feed Africa. This website, if you look, is still full of pictures of combine harvesters charging across Africa for all the world as if it was the American prairie. But a couple of years later, I heard Siggs admit at a conference that, quote, industrial-scale farming displaces and alienates people, creates few jobs, well, you've got all this kit, you don't need many African employees, creates few jobs and causes social disruption. And surely that is closer to the (coughs) truth. Displacing and alienating people, creating few jobs and causing social disruption. Some say that present farming is doomed, that we've simply got to move to large farms. And there's a long, big debate in the uh, development literature about whether small farms or big farms are going to be best in Africa and elsewhere. Some say that only big farming with big kit like this can feed the world. Um, I'm inclined to disagree, I think I probably am biased having met many of the people who are losing their land. But there is a lot of research that I've read which suggests that, in fact, small farmers are very often delivering higher yields on their, on their land than big farms. Their interest is in maximising farm production. Agribusiness and investors, their interest is in maximising profit, and that could be quite a different thing. Where the, agri- where the agribusiness people are pl- uh, parking this farm machinery, the smallholder may have a kitchen garden, may have chickens running through the yard. They're working harder on their land. Um, it's not always true, but I think there is a case to be made for saying that the best way to do development is going to be to invest in smallholder farmers. And I've saw a lot of instances of people doing good stuff even in Africa where a lot of things go wrong it can be very difficult so here is Benekombo in Kenya who sold his fruit to local towns and was actually exporting to Gulf states in Zanzibar a lot of small farmers getting together to set up dairy businesses that's selling to towns on the island and beyond and there are fresh greens fresh green beans being air freighted to Europe from Kenya. Um, This is Jacob, who makes a very good living selling green beans from his small holding near Nairobi to a British company that sells them to UK supermarkets. If you pick up on a Saturday morning a package of green beans that says that it's produce of Kenya, it'll have come probably from smallholder farmers such as him. He's doing very well out of it, so please keep buying the beans. Some farmers are setting up processing businesses so they can make greater profits from their produce. They're planting trees. They're digging terraces to improve their land. They're setting up tourist lodges. This is um, a wonderful lodge, Ilungwezi in Maasai land um, in Kenya, where you have to uh, pay $150 a night to stay, and it's a wonderful experience. Um, I think investing in small farmers, small landowners tribal groups where they still persist is going to be key. Africa's future lies in helping its small farmers find new crops new markets and sometimes new confidence not fencing off their land and packing them off to the cities I don't believe that's the way forward we need less big kit, we need fewer fences like this one, this is around Dominion Farm in Kenya we need small small smallholders in fields like these guys in Liberia Here's another truth. The world already grows enough food to feed 10 billion people. This idea that we've got to annex all the land because otherwise we won't be able to feed the world is really not true. The trouble is we only eat about two-thirds of that food. A lot of it rots, it's eaten by rats and pests, or it's thrown away in the bin by us, or quite a lot of it is turned into biofuels these days. And of course some of the land is used for growing non-food crops, uh, cotton and rubber and so on. a billion people today go hungry or don't have enough food, not because there is no food, but because we cannot help the hungry grow their own food or distribute equitably what we have. Whenever there's a famine, after all, in some godforsaken corner of Africa, and you can be pretty sure that there is food in the warehouses somewhere where hoarders won't sell because they're waiting for the prices to rise. And the problem is that the poor are too hungry are too, excuse me the hungry are too poor to buy poverty is what needs addressing here the problem is not shortage of land it's poverty given that it seems to me that making the hungry even poorer by taking their land doesn't look like a good place to start with development we should I think probably there are codes of practice and things being developed the UN is talking about it What might be good land grabbing and bad land grabbing? I think probably we ought to ban it, except under circumstances where we know that the locals have bought into it and have given their consent. We ought to ban the land grabbers and start investing in the real farmers, and usually that means the local smallholders. Um, I'm going to stop there. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Fred, for what I thought was a uh, very uh, engaging talk. It works very well together with these powerful uh, pictures. I think I can learn something from my own lecture today, which is all, all text-laden. Uh, um, whilst we are getting ready for our uh, co discussions, can I just uh, make two quick announcements, uh, which I forgot? First of all, we are recording the event, which we will we'll, uh, promote then on. The departmental website, you can also sort of download it on iTunes and other places, and second, of course, uh, Fred at the end of the event tonight, will be happy to sign copies of his book which are on sale outside so if you 're interested after the talk, please make your way outside to get the book and then come back inside for Fred to sign good, so we will now have. Um, short presentations by the
2: co discussant We'll start with Anthony. Okay. Well, thank Anthony. you, for that. that was a great talk. Thank you. Um, and, um, I enjoyed your book very much. To prove it, I bought a copy. <laughs> That's my commitment. Um, much of what you say resonates very strongly with me, having looked at, um, South America, Brazil, uh, and, and sort of development issues in general. But you manage to, to capture this process in a, a, a brilliant selection of visits and case studies, as we would say in academia, <laughs> uh, which uh, is extremely readable and accessible. So I strongly recommend that, that, that people buy the book. It's very, very educational, and it, the, sort of the issues come, come to life on the pages very, very strongly. Um, Now, it was suggested that we should try and offer opposing views. Um, The problem is that I agree with practically everything that Fred (laughs) says, you know. And I'm not one of these people who can be a sort of a a force or artificial opponent. I've got to really believe what I'm saying before it has any conviction at all. Um, What I might do, though... Actually, is here it comes. Is to pick up on one of the sections that, that Fred um, writes about concerning concerning the issue of climate change and uh, carbon rights. Here on page, where are we? Towards the end, here, three hundred and three hundred and fifteen, where he spends uh, a few pages discussing the implications of. Uh, climate change policy, uh, conservation and the issue of carbon rights for for land and how it's related. And at first sight, of course, there doesn't seem to be much direct relationship, but thinking about it, I would call it a sort of a third branch of this argument. We start off with uh, land rights, water rights, and I think carbon rights is a logical next step, and one which is likely to expand considerably in terms of the commercial attractiveness to investors and to governments in terms of securing land. Um, As most of you know, under the Kyoto Protocol, industrialized countries can offset their carbon emissions by supporting emissions reduction schemes in the south, including forest projects. About between 18 and 20 percent of greenhouse gas emissions around the world uh, are caused by land use change and forest destruction just the second largest source after energy production. So th- there, are, there are two major sources of potential profits here. First of all, within the compliance structure of the Kyoto Protocol and the Clean Development Mechanism, whereby um, prog- projects can be set up for afforestation and reforestation. But that's just a small proportion. Only 1% of these are allowed. Uh, 1% of the total is allowed to take the form of forest projects. Uh, roughly 40 out of 5,000 clean development mechanism projects are actually uh, to do with the and reforestation so you may dismiss this oh, small fry, nothing to worry about, we're okay the problem is um, red nothing to do with socialism uh, if you were a perverse critic you could call it the red peril uh, and I would be um, loath to do so but RED, it's re stands for reduced emissions from deforestation and forest destruction and degradation and um, this is a burgeoning industry which I've always been very supportive of because it provides economic incentives for forest users to conserve forest rather than destroy it and bring it into, this, bring it into the sort of large scale commercial production that Fred's been talking about but it's it's environmentally friendly, uh, but it's also potentially quite profitable, because it generates carbon credits. Um, and while it is outside of the official UN framework at the moment, sustained largely by foreign aid donations through the United Nations and the World Bank, etc., and some private sector uh, carbon offsets, it does look, once some of the technical and political issues can be overcome, likely to grow as a potential temptation, shall we say, to those seeking to control land in order to capture the carbon credits and the potential profits involved. And as we already know, there are a number of um, investment companies which are based on this potential, and some of them seem to have been doing very nicely. Thank you very much. There are something like 14 million hectares of forest carbon projects which could potentially fall under... An official red umbrella if it were ever to become officially incorporated into the UNFCCC framework. Um, and on the face of it, this is brilliant, all right, because this is going to go a long way towards mitigating climate change, um, in theory, preserving the livelihoods of those people, those populations who depend on the forest. Some of the populations which we saw in Fred's presentation have suffered at the hands of commercial farming and agricultural developers but there is a dark side to this I think and the danger is that unscrupulous governments and commercial interests could use the carbon framework as a tool for controlling natural resources and gaining access to these profits there is a risk as we've seen in some projects so far in some initiatives that forest populations and indigenous groups could be displaced from control over their traditional lands or at least given token participation in order that outside interests might capture the benefits. It's estimated, well, Fred quoted this figure in one of the examples he quoted in his book, that the local communities actually themselves attracted about 20% of the total benefits from one particular uh, carbon uh, forest project. And I would think that's pretty typical, actually, because most of the money gets absorbed in expensive consultancies um, and other costly, costly uh, inputs into the process which don't necessarily end up by benefi- benefiting the, the, the forest population and the indigenous groups uh, actually uh, involved. So there's all sorts of carbon cowboys, fraudsters, and potential for cor- corruption involved in this. And, and I'm a strong supporter of REDD, okay? I'm not here to denigrate red and, and criticise it, but one has to recognise the dark side. So the potential benefits to communities could be considerably smaller than anticipated, than, is, than are publicised by the organisations that, that um, deal with these schemes, and uh, the potential uh, profits could be much larger in, in commercial terms. So what is crucial, I mean, in terms of policy implications, I think, in this context, is two things. I think firstly that uh, red um, carbon verification standards be strictly implemented, that safeguards, social safeguards be built into these schemes and that social analysis be incorporated to induce local participation by populations in their design and implementation in order that they be part and parcel of the whole process rather than mere tools which can be easily manipulated by unscrupulous interests who are out to seek seeking maximum profits the the other essential item of course and this is what was obviously lacking in many of the cases I think that Fred quotes in his book is local organisation people are simply not organised in order to stand up to commercial interests and to unscrupulous local officials and central governments um, whether it be in the case of uh, the sale, the unscrupulous sale of land and, and the eviction of local populations for commercial agricultural projects or whether it be under the guise of carbon sequestration climate change mitigation schemes uh, and, and uh, initiatives of, of a similar nature they don't look the same on the surface but they could potentially be two sides of a very similar coin um, one which would have a green face and one which doesn't really have a green face so I think this, this particular aspect, you could almost write a book about it. well I just have done in fact um, <laughs> a bit of publicity there um, you could almost write a book about it and there are many books written about red as, as an issue but usually from a technical standpoint in terms of green contextual issues rather than as a social issue so um, those of you that want to rush out and buy a book which is very good on this (laughs) um, here is one on forest and climate change and um, it's an issue which uh, is certainly supported and strengthened in the the international debating arena by committed non-governmental organisations and more serious climate change interests but it's also one which is Exploited and um, taken advantage of by some of the more unscrupulous commercial and uh, official interests, and that's something we have to be careful of because this could lead to a, uh, as Fred was saying, a sort of an environmental green grab if we're not very very careful.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Anthony. Uh, carbon cowboy is certainly not a term I had heard before yeah, yeah. so that is interesting over to you now Charlie uh, thank
3: you Eric and thank you Fred oh is it not on? The mic.
0: no just a bit more into Sorry. the mic can you
3: can hear me at the back ok thank you very much Fred and thank you Eric um, ok um, I will talk a bit more about the sort of food side of it so I think I want to start by talking about what is meant by sort of land grabbing um but I will, before I do that, I just want to say it's actually a really, really good read, this book. It really does eliminate the issues on land grabbing. <coughs> and given that we don't actually still don't know much about this issue, given its early days, um, not a lot of good research has been done on this topic. I think it's fair to say the book is uh, it's very colourful, some very interesting characters in there, which Fed did talk about. I mean, some real kind of proper cowboys out there. But also, I should say, the book is actually a lot more nuanced than the presentation. <laughs> um, the presentation may give, give the impression that it's all absolutely terrible out there, which is why in some way we need to sort of get a handle on what we mean by land grabbing. It's a term I don't particularly like very much. Um, for some people, land grabbing, basically agricultural investment, is people putting in money into countries that are not their own to try and invest in the land and invest in agricultural productivity and possibly benefit those living on the land. For others, and in other cases, land grabbing is like a sort of neo-colonial exercise in stealing land. Now the thing is, both of those definitions are relevant. It depends which case you're talking about. So if you read the book, there's a lot more nuance in there. Even within a given country, you'll see certain cases where you see both going on at the same time. Good cases where people are really are investing in local people, local infrastructure, investing in agricultural productivity and other cases within the same country even with the same crop who are doing exactly the opposite, the case of Liberia is a good one so you describe an example of an enclave where they basically fenced off a whole area of land to grow if I remember right, like palm oil um, And but even within the enclave they were providing education uh, healthcare services much better than the average for Liberia as a whole and another case, the one you mentioned in the talk, where it wasn't enclaved, it wasn't cut off they actually had Sharing contract agreements with local farmers, or buying produce of local farmers. So the story is a lot more nuanced than the term "land grabbing" would suppose. And I hate the term "land grabbing." I think it's really misleading, and I think it's almost perjurious. And I would be very careful with that. I would not, you know, at what point does land grabbing become foreign uh, foreign direct investment and vice versa? I think that's an important point to make. So the issue of this land grabbing comes to it really relates to agricultural production, and also with respect to sort of green, um, green issues as well, green grabbing, another stupid term. I won't focus so much on the green grabbing, I will focus on food production, because that was really what most of the talk was about, I think most of the book is, is, a, is about food production. I think this is really important, I think the book does highlight what we do and don't know about agricultural production um, <coughs> with respect to certain countries around the world, or as you say, oil shakes, Chinese, billionaires, whoever, all these people, it's a very colourful book, Um, investing in in land in order to secure food supplies for their own countries. In other words, some countries are going to parts of Africa to secure land in order to feed their their own hungry populations. So is it the poor stealing from the poor to some extent? Um, The thing is, the reality is that we still don't know a lot about what's going on on the ground. What seems to be the case is that where these deals actually take place and where they're actually implemented, because many of these deals are just on paper. So the the Oxfam figure of 200 million hectares, well, in reality, we don't actually know how much land has been um, secured for these kind of bilateral agricultural deals. Um, It's only a matter of time before we actually see how much is going on on the ground. And the thing is, my take on this is that, for the most part, a lot of this investment really won't come to light. The reason being is that many of the countries where the investment is taking place are themselves so poor um, and so, um, um, if you like, um, racked by conflict uh, with weak civil society and so on it's unlikely that these investments would ever really come off over the long run um, nonetheless where the deals are taking place and where they are being implemented we are seeing evidence of a gradual enclosure the commons where people who formerly would have been using these areas of land for their own subs- subsistence and so on are being gradually excluded from that and that's definitely a serious issue that you have raised very well in the book um, <clears throat> but beyond that, it's really quite difficult to see what's going on, um, apart from the contestation over land. But that brings me to the third point, in the race, about the cause of you know, What's actually driving all of these land deals? Why are these countries securing these deals? And you did actually raise this towards the beginning of the talk, in the, in the book as well, the issue of high food prices uh, around 2008, actually just before 2008. Food prices were going through the roof. And many countries that couldn't grow their own food or don't grow enough food of their own. We're looking to secure food supplies for the future. But then you also say, quite rightly, and I was trying to um, recall where uh, earlier on where I can get some stats for this, that the uh, the world does grow enough food. So what's the issue here? The issue here is clearly that countries that have to set up bilateral deals to um, um, secure food supplies are unable to purchase that food from commodity markets. It's an issue of of, of the commodity markets, the issue of distribution of food, rather than um, actually growing more food. Um, So I think that's actually probably more, you know, from a policy angle of more relevance, is how to fix global food markets and distribution of food in order to to ensure that those, including those in the Gulf states, can actually um, feed their own populations
0: there. Fred, do you immediately want to respond or can maybe we open it up for Just, sure. just very
1: quickly because I think we do need to open it up um, I think on red and um, the, the problem the perils of green grabs within red, I mean that's, it's, a, it's a major issue it seems to me that in some parts of the world parts of Latin America uh, local communities indigenous groups and so on with, with secure land rights are in the process of uh, being able to profit from uh, selling the carbon capture in their forests. Uh, they, have the, they have the power, they have the facility to do it, and they are employing their own consultants to do it. Uh, but in much of the rest of the world, you see in Indonesia, you see it in the various few parts of Africa where, it, where it's been tried, it re- it, they really do seem to be losing out. It's become an excuse for, um, for outsiders to take over their forests and uh, it's a, it, it becomes another form of green grab as, as you say um, on Charlie yes I mean there, there are some people take as, as indeed you do the, the term land grabbers um, it's a difficult one, but it, it does capture something, I think. Um, I think it, 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 it's a piece of shorthand, and as a journalist, you know, I'm attracted to it. But also academics, I mean, you know, there are academic conferences. I've been to two of them, two major international conferences, where the title is Land Grabbers. They are, within the, within the academic community, there is discussion about whether it's an appropriate phrase. And a lot of people conclude that. Its, its simplicity is useful. Yes, of course, it um, it confuses if you like good land grabs in the useful foreign investment um, and more kind of uh, feral kind of um, attitude to land. Uh, but within the phrase, we you know we can discuss it. I think it's it's a useful starting point. So I uh, I understand what you say, but I, d- I don't apologise for using it. Numbers yet yeah, nobody knows the numbers. Um, Oxfam has numbers, the World Bank has numbers, a number of other groups have numbers, and they're wildly different about exactly how much land has been grabbed, and of course much will depend on your definition. Most of them actually go back to NGO sources and NGOs that are trying to count the land mentioned in newspaper reports. There's been some rather dodgy academic research, which is basically doing just that and then dressing it up as academic research, when really it's just a, uh, a sort of research of newspaper reports. But you get a rather dangerous spiral where then the journalists report the academic findings as if they were academic findings. The whole thing becomes very circular. Nobody knows. Uh, what I can tell you is that is that a lot of the land grabs have not turned into anything formally on the ground. A lot of them are just paper grabs. Uh, nothing much is happening. Sometimes the land is fenced off so people can't use the land, but there's no agriculture going on. But in other areas, this simply not counted. I mean. The, the, Takeover of parts of Paraguay that I was talking about. Nobody's counted that in. That doesn't turn up, so far as I can see, in any of the number counting allowances. So, you know, some of it's, it's it, nobody knows. Some of the numbers are too high, some are too low. Drivers, um, I agree with you about um, analyzing the failures of the market. There's some stuff in the book about that. Um, as, as you say, and as I say, there is actually plenty of food around. The question is whether the market can deliver it to the people who need it. Um, and indeed, ensure that what we need is is grown. It's not a it's not a shortage of land. It's not a, ultimately a shortage of food. It's a failure of markets.
0: Okay, thank you very much. So we will uh, open it up now to questions from the audience. Uh, can we collect? three each time, if you please say your name, who you are, and could you also say, because we have three speakers, to whom your question is mainly addressed. A question is a question. We had already three presentations. Please, please keep it short and neat. I'm going to start with the lady over there first, then you, and then the lady here.
4: Thank you. Um, hi, my name is, is, on? is on? Yeah. Yeah. My name is Nemi um, and this is a question for Mr. Pierce um, Just when, when you were talking about governments and investors um, I guess my question is if you were going to put pressure on one of those two groups in whether it's codes um, of practice or anything in the future which group would you go to first?
0: Okay, thank you gentleman over here yes
5: thank you I'm Liam I'm a student here master uh, in environmental economics Uh, my question is also addressed to uh, Mr. Piers my question is uh, who would you uh, assign to deal with these issues because uh, it happens in a context of national sovereignty Um, who do you address the western countries I mean for instance the US was billed on land, on a land grabbing way back, and is it that big of a problem? Uh, Kofi Annan was speaking here on October 4th, and the question was raised to him: How does he feel about China's investments in Africa? And he said, "Initially, I agree with them, but if they turn out to be bad contracts, then they will not stand the test of time because new political leaders will be uh, installed." And they will not. They, they don't have to. They don't have to comply with the contracts that were written. So, I okay.
0: yeah. Thank you very much. The lady here. Can we have a mic? It's just one. Okay. The lady here, just behind the camera.
4: This um, pony. Uh, this is about. Um, Slightly different type of land grabbing. But uh, in due course, uh, soon we are all going to put all this land grabbing in a very bigger context with other problems uh, facing mankind. Uh, this My problem is uh, land grabbing. In some countries, um, some oppressive, uh, uh, unjust governments are giving the land of the poor, the marginalized, to tourism developers. Um, so that is a que- now a question is coming. Uh, you, we have to balance the land of the the livelihood land of the poor uh, against the uh, land of the um, uh, uh, tourist resorts or something like of the rich. I come from uh, North Sri Lanka where the people are right now under the boots of the army, and the people who are displaced by area bombing and shelling and put in camps are now being dumped in uh, clear jungles and not allowed to go to their coastal villages, which are being sold to tourism um, businessmen. Uh, It may be indigenous or uh, foreign, uh, this thing. So, we are going to face a bigger problem.
0: Okay thank you very much we're going to start with Fred, but of course, if Anthony or Charlie want to say something as well, you chip in okay, um,
1: governments or investors, who to put pressure on? I mean uh, ultimately, I mean this has to be about government within the countries who have the land, and much of what is happening is a failure of the government within those countries. so my approach um, and this relates also to the question about national sovereignty my approach is that those countries need better governance the people who live on the land need a bigger voice Um, and it is ultimately about setting up demographic institutions Um, I'm a little wary about whether it's me or Greenpeace or Oxfam or whoever it is pontificating about land issues in other countries without engaging with uh, groups within those countries who are fighting on these issues because Um, you you really have to um, be uh, supportive of what's happening within those countries otherwise I think in practical terms you won't get anywhere Um, and you know politically it becomes another form of 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 imperialism if you like so one has to do that within that I think there's an awful lot that can be done Um, corporate people are very wary of uh, if you like corporate risk Um, and part of their corporate risk is their reputational risk They've had a kind of free ride with land grabbing for a while. You can go and there really hasn't been a downside to doing some quite dodgy things. But as NGOs and others get uh, a voice uh, and start campaigning on these issues, there will be risks to them, and I think that will make them back off. But I think fundamentally it has to be about supporting uh, people within countries and trying to improve governance there. Um, I think that probably really does answer the question about national sovereignty, that's where I think things lie Um, I'm not against tourist developments in principle, I am against tourist developments that are dumped on people and on people's land without them having a say I I pointed very briefly to that tourist lodge in Kenya run by Maasai people with the profits being used within their community absolutely in favour of that Um, the problem very often with these is is, is uh, outsiders coming in, whether they're domestic elites or foreign elites. Um,
0: frequently, they're in cahoots at all, of course. Anthony and Charlie, did you want to add, or shall we okay. ask for more questions? Okay, we'll go for more questions then. Uh, can I have the gentleman here? My student in the... I forgot your name, but... But I remember her, <laughs> student on the top, and the gentleman over there. So one, two, three. St- Stephen Woodley, I'm
6: a visitor
2: to town. Uh, I, I, I wonder about this, the, the weight of the green grab problem versus the rest of the issue. Because the example you gave for green grabbing was from Kenya. And Kenya hasn't made a new national park in 25 years. Uh And one place we do have good data is the growth of of green protected areas around the world, and those are mostly now, almost exclusively, with communities rather than against communities. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you.
4: Um, Hi, I'm Robin. Just to refresh your memory. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We'll see you tomorrow. Um, So Uh, so my question is for um, Charlie, I guess. Um, You said that you prefer policies addressing uh, redistribution of food um, that's already within the system, and I feel like that could probably get at the land-grabbing issue, so I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit more about that, or, yeah, instead of, like, putting pressure on governments and um, uh, investors addressing it at the redistribution level.
7: Hi, my name's Ed. I don't have an affiliation. Um, My my question is... um, Fred, you mentioned that the problem of local people not providing their consent um, when it comes to land purchases. Is the problem also the fact of um, a lack of informed consent? Are there examples where local people um, have sold their land but not fully understood the implications that uh, those sales will
0: have on their livelihood? Should we start with you, Fred, and then...
1: Uh, yes, on the last one. Yes, it very, uh, very often is. Um, it also can be local chiefs um, who have uh, speak for their people, um, but kind of don't really speak for their people anymore. I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of issues. Uh, there are certainly people who don't understand the, the detail of what's of what's been approved and what's not. So yes, you're abs- you're you're absolutely right. Um, there are, and there are, it's difficult to generalise, but but just basic understanding of what's going on and what the implications of deals that are proposed to people can be very difficult and indeed the scale of compensation that they might expect um, on green grab and um, yes maybe, maybe, maybe you're right actually Kenya is mean, an example of the, the, the amount of land that we can be talking about I mean large parts of Kenya are given over to national parks and are quite a lot more land to private reserves now Um, Now, you're right that some of those are are, um, not just there but elsewhere are community projects, but an awful lot aren't. I mean, I spent quite a lot of time in the book looking at privately owned um, sort of safari parks for tourists, um, top end uh, um, establishments uh, across southern Africa and and eastern Africa and there are are some in Latin America as well and elsewhere. so I don't think what I'm talking about has gone away. And you do find that, you know, the Ted Turners and the uh, Richard Bransons of this world are, are buying up big chunks of land and, and then turning them into, into tourist places, uh, except for the sort of couple of weeks a year when they perhaps want to go there themselves. So I think there's, um, yes, there, is, there are good projects, of course. There is good stuff being done. I'm in favour of them, but I really don't think the bad stuff has gone away.
0: Um, Fred, can I just ask you, in terms of percentage, what do you think is green-grabbing the way you perceive it?
1: Um, well, it, it, it depends on what you call a green-grab. I mean, 10% of the land surface of the planet is, is protected in some manner, but I wouldn't wish to suggest that all that was green-grab. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, a, there is a, a rather acrimonious and, indeed, unpleasant debate that goes on between environmental groups and anthropologists, social anthropologists, about the circumstances... Um, under which various communities have been persuaded, shall we say, to leave protected areas um, and whether that should be regarded as kind of evictions or not. Um, There's more heat and light in that debate, um, and I don't really want to take sides on
3: it because I don't think either side come out of it particularly well.
0: Okay. Charlie.
3: So I just want to add to the um, question of protected areas. There's no question in the last 20, 30 years there's been quite a huge change in terms of how protected areas are managed all the way around the world given that many protected areas are particularly in developing uh, areas are effectively paper parks they only exist on paper in reality they are open access areas. people can go in and out as they choose but the issue where they where they are actually effectively protected is particularly conservation groups they believe that you know that just biodiver- protected biodiversity comes at a cost of excluding local people but the last 10 20 years we have seen not just in public parts, but also in private initiatives, which are a relatively recent phenomenon of, of, of trying to engage local people, because people who run these places realise that over the long run, these areas cannot be sustained over time without involvement of local people. They are destined to fail. So I do think there's been a huge shift in attitudes, and also in terms of, of policy, in terms of actually engaging with local people. They haven't always worked out. Of course they don't. But in terms of where we were 20, 30 years ago, where protected areas were very much... And find keep people out. We've certainly moved a long way in the last few decades. I think I,
1: I'd agree with much of that, but uh, but don't confuse um, involvement and engagement with control. There's an awful lot of involvement that, kind of, you know, when push comes to shove, really they're just the natives, and you know they don't understand the ecosystem or whatever.
2: So yes, I agree. It is a lot better than it was, but uh, it's still, anyway. Yes, <laughs> also bearing in mind the fact that some of these issues are actually quite complex. Things like the sale of carbon rights and uh, benefits uh, benefit sharing amongst indigenous communities. I mean, these are not necessarily easy things to grasp. So even if there is token participation, quite often this can, as, as Fred says, be in effect subject to sort of localized forms of, of control and co-optation. Uh, while I also agree with Charlie that there has been massive progress in the last couple of decades in terms of involving local populations and the greater comprehension of the issues involved. I mean, if only because, as Charlie says, you know, the, the custodians of natural resources and forests are essential. essentially the local people. Without that, as you say, it doesn't work. You, know, you can't just have a few rangers and park keepers and the old helicopter and Land Rover to, to do justice to uh, millions of hectares.
0: Okay. We'll have a new set of questions staying well clear of my students in order not to further reveal my ignorance of uh, names. <laughs> uh, we'll have the lady in the uh, white jumper uh, first, then the one with the plaque up there, and then we'll go to the gentleman with the glasses there in the middle.
4: Thank you. Oh, uh, let's question that.
0: Robert, state your question again, please. Uh, I'm sorry if it errs. I, I thought I thought you looked at me and um, so the re, in, re- addressing uh going up in redistribution of food
4: instead of uh instead of putting pressure on government or in uh investment investors. Okay.
1: That was in, yes, that was TV, wasn't it? Yeah.
0: Robin, I must confess, I didn't understand your question very well, but then, you know, I'm not the expert. Uh, we'll have you as a fourth, and you'll restate your... All right, we'll go here with the lady first.
6: Yes, um, thank you very much. My name is Beatrice Groth. Um, I want to say, first of all, thank you to Professor Eric Neumeyer uh, for raising this awareness over Africa. And um, uh, this, the whole thing to me, looks like another exploitation of Africa. Um, Africa has been once exploited. I'm I'm a student of uh, journalism, University of East London. Uh, and I do also politics. Um, Looking into the history of Africa, I think everybody should start helping Africa to stand and not to fall. So every effort we make to bring Africa down is pushing Africans back to Europe. And everybody, all Europeans, are blocking ways for Africans to enter. But if there is problem at home, Just like the birds, when the weather changes here, they go somewhere else. You can't stop them. My question is, sir, how can you or all of you help us to stop this exploitation on Africa? They've been once exploited as slaves, and now they're exploiting their land and their property.
0: So I think the question is again on policy.
6: Yes, I came from Nigeria, German question. Nigeria. And in Nigeria, the waters, the oil companies have ruined the Nigerian land.
0: Mm-hmm.
6: People can no more farm. They don't In Africa, nobody receives benefit like they do in Europe.
4: Mm-hmm.
6: So the, the, the source of crime is because of poverty. And people who can farm on their land, fish their food, are no more able to do these things and the government is not supporting them. Majority of the gro- government, they are 90, 99.9% criminals. So nobody is supporting the poor man. So at the end of the day, it's coming back to, to where, what we are talking about, exploitation. Please, how can this help to stop exploitation okay. of the African? Very good question.
0: Can we have the, the lady up there in the plaque? Yes, please.
4: Hi, um,
2: my name is Artemis and thanks so much, Fred, for holding this talk. This is actually just a question for Anthony. Um, in relation to carbon rights,
4: do you think that there's maybe too much focus on
2: market mechanisms such as emission trading schemes and the, um, the red mechanism, and do you think that there should maybe be more focus on legislation on ca- carbon capture storage um, and do you think that this could maybe be a threat to carbon rights in the future?
0: And the gentleman here with the classes...
7: Hi there. i um, Andrew Gordon-McLean. I'm a researcher for um, International Institute for Environment and Development, IIED. Um, a question perhaps reflecting on some of the, the, the comments tonight, which is um, prior informed consent and also how do you stop exploiting people. So my my question really is, is going back to, I think, um, and this is both to... Uh, Anthony Hall and to Fred, Fred Pierce um, within this kind of process it's very difficult to find and I wouldn't certainly from experience I've, I've got from looking at some um, land deals that went on between biofuel companies and communities when you go out and you actually you talk to the companies and you go out and talk to the communities their understanding of what went on is exceedingly different and the power relationship is, is I mean the the um, the difference in power between those two parties is huge. So as the watchdog, as a kind of a a fair broker within these deals that go on, because a lot of communities will end up having very unrealistic expectations and often local, uh, often government people don't help that at all, and they then end up losing out. So my question really is who could be those types of the honest broker within that process?
0: Okay,
1: good question as well. Fred. Yeah, I think both questions are, are a bit the same, actually, in, in, in my approach to them at any rate. Um, yes, Africa suffers hugely from exploitation. Yes, it's sometimes, I hate to generalise, but can be its own worst enemy. Some countries' governments can be. I think, actually, African people have to start asserting their control over their own resources, over their own land, and say no, and not feel that they have to invite in every foreign investor who wants to come in because um, they, they sort of feel they need to. There has to be a kind of uh, perhaps lose us at the sense of the sort of victimhood, which I think does... Um, can be a problem under some circumstances and just be a bit more assertive. And that really comes my thinking is really, as I was answering the question earlier about what outsiders can do, is outsiders can in, invest in helping political processes within African countries, encouraging NGOs. I think NGOs are absolutely critical as honest brokers in many of these activities. best NGOs, certainly. And by NGOs I don't just mean groups in cities or groups that are part of an international network I mean I mean groups living in forests, uh, campesina networks and whatever you like but the sort of civil society just to outsiders can help them develop expertise and knowledge and the confidence to pursue campaigns about issues like that and you do see it happen now, you see it happen a lot in Liberia we've talked about Liberia Wonderful NGOs, very active there, and linking up with other groups across West Africa. That, I'm sure, is the way forward. Groups like IIED, I believe, do a fantastic job in helping link up those groups, helping provide resources for them, but ultimately the politics has to happen within African countries. It can't be done outside, and it shouldn't be done outside.
2: Yes, I mean, I, I would... Um I would certainly um, endorse what Fred has said. In terms of, to take the second question first, in terms of trying to do something about the very unequal, very asymmetric power relationships which exist between the um, holders of power, as it were, and local communities, the people on the ground, it is a serious issue. Um, People, traditional peoples often don't understand what they're getting into. They don't have a clear understanding of the issues. They are very dependent on, as says, the honest power brokers, mainly through civil society organizations, NGOs in particular, to lay it out before them and to make sure that they don't get the rough end of the stick. So it's all about building organization, building participation, and empowering, empowering local groups to have an active role rather than being uh, trampled over at the end of the day. Not as easy as it might sound sometimes. We academics often talk about the beauties of empowerment but how that is actually reflected on a day-to-day basis is another matter indeed because there are many different layers in these power relationships and we shouldn't over-romanticize NGOs either because quite often they're in it for very selfish interests very selfish reasons not necessarily having the altruistic concern for the poor that maybe they they should have sometimes but having said that of course there are many excellent excellent organizations out there fighting for these issues on, on the first question of um, carbon capture and storage uh, I don't think it's an alternative for RED. it's pro- a compliment I mean there are still huge doubts about the kind of, of benefits of which red is capable of delivering And um, optimists like myself often tend to paint a rosy picture in terms of the potential here but I think one has to uh, explore all the options Carbon capture and storage is—it's not an area I'm particularly um, expert in, to say the least. But whatever options exist, I think they should be—they uh, should be looked at together as complementary activities.
3: Charlie, I just want to add a quick point to the point about the um, how African countries can help themselves or what they can do. And I think it's, again, generalising is not very satisfying in a way because I mean, obviously there's a huge diversity of countries, some of which have quite strong civil societies some of which have quite strong democracies as well and are quite able to look after themselves and others, particularly when you had your examples, Liberia, Sierra Leone uh, right at the opposite end of the scale these are the countries that are most traumatised of all and it's not, perhaps not surprising that a lot of these land deals are taking place in some of the most fragile states on earth not just in Africa, so again you know, talk about Africa we all know it's a complete waste of time generalizing, but those countries are pretty, pretty damn fragile.
0: Okay. I think we could uh, continue this discussion forever, but unfortunately we have to come to a close. I know there are so many questions uh, unanswered. May I just remind you that the book is uh, outside for sale. If you want to get a copy, bring it back in for it to get signed, and then please join me in thanking both Fred and the Italian.